Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 this morning. We're looking at uh, the theme of prayer, but under the uh, category that I brought up last, last week, which was the challenge of being either a consumer or worshiper. Consumer or worshiper, customer or um, coming as a Christian sacrifice, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Uh, you kind of come in one of two mindsets. Uh, I hate to oversimplify, but at risk of oversimplification, just bear with me. You, you either come as someone who's coming to buy something or critique something, uh, perhaps like you're going to Best Buy to find some widget to make your life um, easier, or you come with the mindset of a Christian where you say, I, I can't believe I'm saved. Thank you, God. And with gratitude and thanksgiving in my heart, I, I just want to give back to you my praise, my worship, my joy. You come to offer something, like an Old Testament sacrifice. In the New Testament, we offer our hearts so with lips of praise that are connected to the life that's been created in our hearts. We've been transformed. So we, we sing songs, hymns, spiritual songs. We make melody in our hearts. It's one thing to critique the worship, the, the sound, the music, the ensemble, the selections. It's another thing to have dynamic happen as you resonate with truth. And you're resonating with the truth of whatever is sung that's true from Scripture. And that's what, that's what exalts Christ as our hearts lift to him. So we, we come and we, we see people, but we come not to take, not to wonder who's going to say hi to us or not. That is a real life dynamic in church, but we come to give, we come to encourage, we come to, here's the word, edify, build up the body of Christ. And we're used with our giftings that the Lord has give, gifted us with to, to encourage or pray for or bear, another, bear one another's burdens. This is all sacrificial worship. It's 180 out from going to a movie. And, you know, where will I sit? How was it? Was I bored? Was I engaged? Those are two diametrically opposed mindsets. And I believe that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is dialing into the one or the other. You're, he's bifurcating the, in, in a binary way the difference between a religious person and a, and a true worshiper, a hypocrite play actor, or someone who's being real with God, a child of God, one or the other. And that, that bifurcation exists today. It is what we, what we see in, in church, in church abroad. There was such a movement in the 80s of showtime religion. It's on TV and dramatized and, and gatherings where, where it's really a show to be entertained by the largest like quote unquote church down in Texas is really, if you see it on TV, it's just a massive auditorium of, of people seated, sitting there to be wowed by a motivational speaker. That, that isn't bringing an offering, bringing a sacrifice. Why do you serve? Why would you jump into children's ministry? Why would you, why would you hold a baby in the nursery? Why would you do a one on Wednesday night? Why would you show up? What, what is, what is that doing for you to give? Well, this is how it works. As a Christian, you've been given a new heart. And that heart is, the old one was taken out, you got a new one. So when you got a new heart, this is how it works. When you come with the attitude to give, suddenly you receive blessing as you give. When you don't come with the attitude to give, then suddenly your heart closes up and you feel left empty. So if you feel empty and dry as a believer, it could possibly be a word for you to reexamine and think, am I giving? Is my mindset to give? Not just to sign up for something, but an attitude to give. Because as you give, the more blessed you are. The more you give, the more blessed you are. It's more blessed to give than to receive. So if you're, you know, the kid at Christmas going, what am I going to get? What am I going to get? What am I going to get? It's always undershooting what you really think you need to satisfy your heart. You get exactly what you want. You go, oh, okay. <laughs> but, but the giving moment is watching the person open the gift that you thought 
for them to have and you wanted them to have it and you, you're looking and you're watching and a facial expression. My wife had this moment where she specially bought, she overbought something for a particular family member and she was sitting there and the person's eyes flashed and she went, yes. And that was her gift in that moment more than the wow moment that the kid had. And I was like, man, why, why'd she spend so much money? But it's for her own heart. But see, that's how it all works. But it's out of a genuine motive that you give and then you receive by giving. The categories that are listed before us in chapter 6 are three. Uh, the first is giving. We, we tackled that last week. The second is prayer. We're going to tackle that for a longer time. And then finally, we'll look at fasting, what it means to, to sacrifice for God in his glory. And these are three uh, practices in all religion, but only in Christ are these true practices undefiled practices, what we've called undefiled orthopraxy, which is just right practice. Orthodoxy is right truth, right doctrine. Orthopraxy is right practice, practicing truth for God's glory. It's, it's being a doer of the word of God with sincerity, authenticity, and reality. All of this is a, is a application to chapter 5. Chapter 5 was Jesus beginning his sermon, peeling back the layers of religiosity in the Pharisees and showing that they were using Old Testament scripture to cover for their own sin as a blanket protection for being a hypocrite or a play actor. And once these layers are peeled back, now all you can do is look at chapter 6 and say, what is the right way to live the Christian life? I was... Uh, Reminded when I looked at the Lord's Prayer, and that's the that's really where we're we're zeroing in on that this passage that we're going to be looking at is one of the most repeated passages in in our country, probably around the world. It is Psalm twenty three, and then this one, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, these phrases are are repeated over and over again in all kinds of arenas, political arenas, believing arenas, and unbelievers alike will will recite this. We used to recite it before our junior high wrestling meets. Uh, we'd get on our knee, one knee, and, and recite our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you know, and we'd go from there. And it was powerful. It was powerful to do it. It was powerful to do it in a secular arena. But it is an interesting thing to think about um, saying things that are the word of God, but saying things without sincerity, as a lot of people will do. We have to be sincere when we pray. I was watching a movie with my boys this weekend, kind of editing through it a little bit, but it was a sports movie. And at halftime, both teams were, were shown as on their knee reciting the Lord's Prayer. I'm not here to judge whether the, right, the rightfulness or wrongfulness of that, but the context of what we're going to open up that Jesus talks about is in the context of vain repetition. And it's very ironic. It's very powerful that the very antidote to vain repetition. These are the tracks that Jesus lays out for us to pray along. The, it's, it's the path for prayer. These are mile markers to ascend up to God by, okay? These very phrases are the ones that are vainly repeated over and over again, where people are headlessly saying things without even thinking about what they're speaking about. It's ironic, but that's what the devil does where he will use what is pure, what is undefiled, what is powerful, what's the path for prayer. He'll twist it into a mantra that people will say to believe that they are right with God, to believe that they are speaking a blessing into their wrestling event without actually meaning it. What's meant for good can be twisted and contorted and actually distance people from God as opposed to bringing people near to God. And we're going to look at that. Uh, really, what Jesus is doing in this text, in this portion of the sermon, is he's identifying two pitfalls that you can fall into as a believer. You can start to act like a Pharisee, whether you know it or not. You suddenly can start acting like a Pharisee. Hypocrites is uh, where we get the word hypocrite, but it was also a synonym for the play actor who would wear the mask in the Greco-Roman theater. It's play acting. It's praying out loud to be seen. It's giving out loud in public to be seen, to be affirmed. It's religious affirmation to make yourself feel better about yourself that you have to run from and flee and distance yourself from. Secondly, it's the temptation of praying like a pagan. 
praying like a pagan where you are whooped up in some sort of experiential mantra where you're saying phrases vainly and vain repetition over and over again to try to drum up some experience with God to say, okay, now I've felt him, where you couldn't be farther from God. So that's what Jesus is warning us of. It's true orthodoxy that leads to true practice, true orthopraxy. We're looking at the, the second category, giving, praying, fasting. We're looking at praying and prayer here. Let me begin at verse 5 again and read through this section on prayer. Jesus says in verse 5, chapter 6, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need Before you ask him, pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. This is the truth. These are the profound words of prayer. This is what should shock us out of our hypocrisy. And this is what is meant, this teaching is meant to Um, correct us in any form of paganism that we may be participating in in our prayers. The word hypocrite is used in verse 2 here and also in verse 5, the section we looked at last week when we opened up the category of prayer. The answer to not being a hypocrite is to pray more privately with sincerity of heart than praying publicly for approval. Nothing wrong with praying publicly, but if you have no secret prayer life, no personal prayer life where you're shutting the door, meaning it's just you and God. Nobody's going to overhear this. Nobody's going to give you credit for it. Nobody's going to see it. It's only God who sees that matters. It's God who gives us the assurance of our salvation, which is the reward that we're going to heaven. That's the knowledge of our prayer life that we hold dear, where we're praying to God and we See him through faith, and we know that he sees us because he's omniscient. Praying like the hypocrite and praying like the pagan could not be any farther from this kind of practice. But what is praying like a pagan? What does that look like? Look at verse 7. And when, this word when means Christians are going to pray, you're going to do it, you're going to want to do it, need to do it, when you pray... Don't do it like a pagan. Here it is. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Gentile meaning outside of Israel. All the pagan idolatry, all the worship that's outside of the way God told us to approach him is paganism. And it's identified as Gentile worship here. What is the key hallmark of Gentile worship? It is empty phrases. It's superstitious religion. It's praying to God in incantations where you say, I'm not part of that witchery. I'm not part of a Wiccan white witch cult or dark arts. What are we talking about here? No, we're talking about praying phrases for phrases sake, like an incantation, like a mantra, praying something over and over again. And I've been around and been party to prayers like these because I've been in different Christian circles at Christian colleges and university settings and secular Christian campus settings and church settings and different denominations. I've been around. I've not just been cloistered in kind of this Bible church arena. I've been in Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, charismatic weekends. I've seen it where people will say, Jesus, 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 over and over and over again. And they're taking the Lord's name in a vain way, 
way, not in a curse word, but just vain repetition, you know, or declaring, God, you will do this, and I know that, and I'm laughing because of this, or I'm falling apart in histrionics because of that, and it's proving that God is real. This is unintelligible, unintelligent, mindless, disengaged experientialism that has nothing at all to do with God. That's what Jesus is calling out. Don't do this when you pray. Don't do it. It's superstition. It's, it's genie in the bottle prayer where you're just rubbing the lamp, trying to see if God will bless you because of some kind of way that you phrased a prayer. Whenever a book like the prayer of Jabez, remember that thing came out, pray in this specific way. It was a formula that is trying to mirror back to you some blessing. If you do this, then that'll happen. And that, that's not what Jesus is talking about. It is a form of paganism. And it's the idea that believers can be tempted to heap up these babbling phrases, empty phrases is bata logeste, which basically means uh, it's like an onomatopoeic word. It's, it's a word that sounds like what it's doing. It's a babbling word. It's a vain repetition. It's not wrong to pray meditatively. It's not wrong to, we should, we should pray earnestly. We should pray passionately. It's not wrong to pray long prayers, but it is wrong to pray vain prayers. It's wrong to take the Lord's name in vain, just to be doing it for doing its sake. It's wrong to do that. There's the old um, sort of sarcastic remark that worship choruses that, that are the 7-Eleven ones, they, they say it. Seven times, they, they say seven verses and they're repeated 11 times. Seven verses, 11 times, just for doing it, for saying it over and over to whoop up some kind of experientialism. It's drumming something up. And then it becomes extremely frustrating when we don't see our prayers answered. We say, where is God? Don't I need something of a higher level of spirituality then to see God work? How do I hit the zenith? Where do I hit the sweet spot to make prayer powerful in my life? And none of that is true. It's actually this form of paganism is something that crept into the church in the 60s and 70s and 80s and the forms of of yoga and transcendental meditation and things like that where people are, instead of engaging truth when they pray, engaging the God of scripture when they pray, instead of doing that, people are disengaging, wanting to dislocate themselves from thinking into an experience instead. It's the idea of emptying yourself rather than filling yourself. That's why I introed the service with Colossians 3.16, which says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The Bible is, is a book unto itself. It is inspired. It is set apart. It is powerful. It is living. It is called a two-edged sword. It cuts and it exposes our sin, but it also shows us Christ. It gives us a picture of who God is. It's not just a a book of God's morality of right and wrong. There's truth to that, but it's also a vision of who God is. So as you are filled with this Holy Spirit inspired book, the Holy Spirit is filling your mind with who God is. And that's what locks you into prayer. If you're praying without a vision of God, you're not praying at all. People get involved in Judaistic cults like Kabbalah, I was looking that up earlier. People get into empty phrases. You, you see these pictures of people by a wailing wall saying things and doing things. And that's, that's pharisaical. That's with religious veneer acting like a pagan. That's putting both those things together. Think about it. Then you have Buddhism and, and people emptying themselves and clear your mind. If you clear your mind enough, then you can hear the voice of God. That's taking the Lord's name in vain. That's experientialism. As one person put it, I was telling them this sermon. He said, yeah, it's kind of like taking the firewall off your computer if you just empty yourself. The word of God is the grid through which we see truth and see life and see God. It, it forms our world view. We need that firewall. We don't need to let go of anything or empty ourselves of the word of God at all. Philippians 4.8, whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise, what? Think on these things. And what happens? Your anxious life becomes peaceful and the peace of God, which surpasses 
All comprehension will guard, will garrison your mind in Christ Jesus. It will build a garrison, a guard protection around your heart and soul. That's what you're meditating on is truth. Whenever Paul prayed, he would, he would mutter names. He would just mull through names of people in these churches. You see them in the opening of, of many of his New Testament letters where he, he would pray night and day, but he would pray that they would be filled in all the knowledge of Christ. That's what the, he, he would just pray that. Look for that prayer request. He's, the, the prayer request is always for the shepherd wanting the sheep to be filled with faith-filled truth. Faith and truth where you're really believing that Jesus is real on a convictional level. That's the prayer request of Paul. It's a very strong Pauline prayer request. Why? Because when sheep or Christians or any of us really believe that this is really real and Jesus is really alive and we don't want the world, then all the good things happen in our lives. Not that we're exempt from trials, but we're going to grow through those trials. We're going to trust God more. We're going to serve. We're going we're to exalt Christ. We're going to be a good testimony. That's, that's prayer that's intelligent, that's word-filled. First Peter chapter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. You've got to have a, a high view of God and a low view of man, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. That's the posture of prayer. That's a worshiper, not a consumer. If you're a customer going, I, you know, I tried it, you know. That my life coach told me to pray, so I tried it a few times. It didn't work. That's not what we're talking about. Prayer is humble submission, giving, offering sacrifices, offering yourself to the Lord and letting him answer according to his will. His will. It's not the quantity of words, but it is the quality of words, getting your, your mind right where you are in authentic prayer. And if you look at, Verse 8, I like this, it's, it, it answers how we're supposed to think about God when we pray. Again, verse 7, don't be like Gentiles, don't think, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. That's legalism, more and more. If I do more and more, if I say more and more, then great things are going to happen. Instead, look at verse 8, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. What is the posture of prayer? I'm coming to God who knows everything. I'm coming to God, who is my father, who's known me before he made me and has loved me all this time, right, through my whole life. He knows everything I've done wrong. He knows everything I've done right. He knows the needs that I think I want to ask for. He knows the needs that I really need to ask for. He knows what what really will be the right blessing. And he knows all those things before we ask him. He's fully, here's the theological word, omniscient. He's all-powerful, omnipotent, but he's omni- he knows everything. And so you come before this all-knowing God, and you basically are conversing with him who's invisible to you physically, and you talk to him about things he already knows that are going on in your life and you need. You talk to him in a way where you're actually in a posture of dependence saying, Lord, please, will you shape the way that I need to pray about this or that? Will you change me more than change the circumstance? Will you help me? Will you guide me through this? And, and we're going to get to this, but our father, we're coming to our father. It's not just my father, about my needs, about myself. Prayer is not first and foremost about us. Prayer is about God. It's our father, our father. We're coming. I'm coming as one of the Christians of the whole church, invisible, invisible for all the time. I'm coming to our father who knows everything that's going on in my life. And I'm coming as a living sacrifice. And we pray that you will work it out, that you'll work things out and answer these prayers. According to your will, high view of God, low view of man, according to the authority of scripture. What does this look like? It's two gears. I've used this a lot in preaching, but I can't get away from it. Once I thought it up one day in college, it never left me. It's, and it's still here. Our words are the lower gear, what we're saying. It's the lower gear. It's what, it's our feeble, enfeebled version of what we think we need. You know, Luke 11, we'll reference that in a minute. We're the child. I I need bread. (laughs) I I need, I need a fish right now, Lord. (laughs) Please, I know you won't give me a stone. I know you won't give me a serpent. I'm just coming to you. That's the lower gear. 
And then the upper gear is God's sovereign will, what he's actually going to do, what he's planned to do, his dynamic will, knowing your needs. It's, it's the word of God that is bridging the gap between the gears. We're trying to pray the word of God back to God who knows everything and sync up with his will. What does that look like? Well, flip over in your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. Just look with me real quick. It's a great, quick couple verses that... Frame up exactly what's going on. First John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. This is confidence. This is getting your, getting your heart confident in prayer. This is the confidence we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He has a will. We're just trying to sync up with it. And if we know... That he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked of him. So when our prayers synchronize with God's will, it's going to be done. As one person put it, our, our prayers are found within God's predestination. <laughs> As C.H. Spurgeon put it, um, our prayers are what move the slender nerve of the sovereign hand of God. It's a mystery how it all works. We pray things. God puts things on our hearts. He leads us and guides us to particular passages. He brings things to mind. He, he brings about conversations and circumstances that influence us. And then we bring things before the Lord and we're casting our prayers upon and cares upon him and requesting things according to the sovereign will of God. And we want God to work. And then God in his omniscience knows everything and he works it out and is blessing according to his will. Another key passage that shows this is Romans 8, and I would invite you to look there. I think I'm referencing the New American Standard here, but Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray. We don't know what to pray. We're weak. We're the lower gear, for as we ought. But the Spirit himself, this is the Holy Spirit, intercedes. He's working. He's the grease in the gears here. He's working intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. We don't know what to pray. God's language, God is talking within the inner Trinitarian fellowship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, working this out as we are sons and daughters of God coming with our request. And God is working what we're saying into his will. Verse 27, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. The Father is looking into the Spirit's mind because the Spirit intercedes for the saints. He's the link between us and God and his will. And God, the Holy Spirit, is interceding for the saints according to the will of God. What does this look like? Verse 28. For we know, this is confidence again. We're confident. We know God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. For Christians, what is the good? It's verse 29. It's to be conformed into the image of his son. As God is calling us to pray, drawing us to pray, giving us scriptural prompts to pray, encouragement to pray. And as we pray, God is working our feeble prayers into his will and a big part of his will in our lives is saving us and making us like Jesus. We want all kinds of things. Give me this, Lord. Give me that, Lord. I want this now. Change this circumstance. And Jesus is going, I know you want that, but I want Jesus in you more than you need that. I'm going to give you Jesus in your heart as you are conformed into his image. I'm going to make you like Jesus. I'm going to keep it hard right now to make you like Jesus. I'm going to bless you right now in a way that you didn't expect that's above and beyond all you could ask or think. I'm going to give you more than what you're asking for to make you like Jesus right now. I'm going to take this away from you to make you like Jesus right now. I'm going to bless you abundantly right now to make you like Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's making us like Jesus as we pray. If we lower our vision of God and make him into the genie in the bottle or the senile old man up in the attic that doesn't really know what's going on, then we're not going to understand what prayer is really all about. You're going to miss the point. As one person put it, I was told this this week, it's funny, it's like where people say they want their heavenly father, but really what they want is their heavenly grandfather. <laughs> they want somebody who's just benevolent with no accountability whatsoever. We want our heavenly father who knows really what we 
need. Just flip over really quickly to Luke's account of this and the Lord's Prayer in, in Luke 11. Luke 11. He, he speaks to the Lord's Prayer here, Luke does, quoting Christ. And then in verse 5, this is the application of the Lord's Prayer. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. Do not bother me. The Lord, I mean, the door is now shut. Now, this is the story of my life, by the way. I shut my eyes. I shut my door and I hear knock, knock, knock. The door is shut. And I do. I call out. In this case, the children are already in bed with him. He says, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. And that used to be foreign to me, but it happens. Children, dogs, anything. But if you move, if you move, they wake up and your night is over. Verse 8, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, which is the word persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be opened. Now, is that, does that mean that if we work hard enough and knock long enough and pray earnestly enough with as many words as possible that God's going to give us what we want? No. He's going to give us what we need in the context of a father-son relationship. And that's exactly what he says. Look at verse 11. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Lord, I need a serpent. I need a serpent right now. I've got kids. They're not in the room right now. You know, give me this for my birthday. And I'm going, you can't have that yet for your birthday. That's not good for you. That's not good for anybody, right? I mean, you know, give me this lest I die. No. No, we're asking for things in the context of a relationship and the Holy Spirit is refining what we ask in terms of the wisdom and the will of God. God gives us what we need. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. No, God gives us our needs. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit, to those who ask him. He'll line us right up with what we need. God is not our buddy. He is not senile. He's not someone to chum around with. He's not someone to take lightly. He is God, very God, and he is our father. And with our father, we have a relationship. We have an everlasting relationship. We have a nothing can separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus relationship. You have a no condemnation status relationship. You have a God who disciplines you relationship. He disciplines the ones he loves. You have a God who will discipline you for doing wrong. You have a God who will call you out, but you have a God who will never leave you nor forsake you. You have a God who knows exactly who you are, what you need, and what you do not need relationship. This is your God and my God from Scripture. Now, I want to turn back to the Old Testament to show you God, who is the same God yesterday, today, and forever, from 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18 is one of my favorite Bible stories in the Bible, and I'm going to share it with you now because it reflects the difference between a customer or consumer and a true worshiper. It's the difference between a person who approaches God in paganism versus a approaches a God in worship. And I am using the word pagan and consumer synonymously in terms of heart attitude when you come to church. If you come to church in vain repetition, in a what have you done for me lately attitude, you are coming to God as a pagan, in a pagan mindset. But if you come to God as a worshiper, as a, as a, and a person who adores God, a worth-giving Christian, then you are a true worshiper. And that differentiation is made very clearly in the account of 1 Kings 16 through 18. This is the account of Elijah, of course, who confronted the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. And what you see here in verse, verses, uh, 1 Kings 16, beginning at verse 25, you have a king named Omri. Omri was, at that point, the worst of the kings, 
So you have uh, Israel, which was um, divided after Solomon's reign in 722. It was divided into a northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. You have Jeroboam, the king who jumped up to the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam, who remained. This is how you remember it. Jeroboam jumped, Rehoboam remained, northern kingdom kings, and you have one king after the other. And there was a digression away from God into idolatry. In verse 25 of 1 Kings 16, Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. Now you get to his son um, Ahab, and this is verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Quite an awful epithet. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. This is he married a pagan. That's what Ahab did. He married someone who is a pagan worshiper. And so his heart went to paganism and went and served Baal or Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Ashereth, which is the pornography of Israel during that time, the god of fertility, but really contorted and twisted into immorality, a symbol of that. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the god of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel and Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of the youngest son of Segub, according to the word of the Lord, and he spoke by, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. All of this was playing out as, as God had allowed, but it was provoking God to judge Israel. And so how, what did the judgment look like? It looked like drought. That's what it looked like. It, basically, God's going to dry everything up and make everybody starve and be in utter, utter destitution so that they'll repent. That's what's going on. Imagine that. We have a small glimpse of things changing and shifting in our culture dramatically. Well, this is a, it's not going to rain for three years moment. Elisha comes on the scene, verse one. Now Elijah, or Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Notice in verse five. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. This is a key phrase. The word of the Lord It's used over and over again through these chapters. Why do I bring this up? Christian prayer Believing prayer is always according to the word of God. It's syncing yourself up with God's word and God's will. Pagan prayer is the opposite. It does not sync up with God's will or God's word. It's looking inward and it's worshiping self. Two different forms and one is of God and the other is not. Elijah comes up. And basically is said, saying that it's, it's going to dry up except by my word. Now, in the history of Israel, what happened is Elijah actually was worshipped because he was viewed by pagans as like a pagan god, like Zeus. He was the one who prayed and the elements stopped. And he prayed again and then three years later, rain came. So we're going to worship him. Like Zeus or Hercules, statues were made um, at the end of chapter 18 or uh, there's this scene where he picks up his, his tunic and, and runs and outruns Ahab's chariot to, to Jezreel. So he does things by God's supernatural intervention. I mean, no doubting the supernatural. It's just the power is not in Elijah. The power was in God's will and his word. Remember in James chapter 5, it's going to say that, that Elijah is a man who has a like nature as our own. The mortality or humanity, the humanness of Elijah is really what's on display here because Elijah is doing everything according to the timetable of God. 
A lot of times in hyper-charismatic movements these days, the days, the Bill Johnson movement, the Bethel Redding movement, where people are declaring, I declare and I command that weather to stop, or I, I declare, you know, for this drought to end, or for it to rain, or for this tornado to go away. I used to live in really the backyard of the 700 Club with all the Pat Roberts and stuff. I lived, I lived a mile away from that growing up. I went to Sunday school on campus there because our church used their facility. It's just wild. Don't hold that against me. All that to say, he used to pray that the hurricanes would stay away. But the idea of that kind of false thinking is the idea that you can believe that you have the power as a little God within yourself. That's the nomenclature that's used in that errant false teaching that you are a little God and you can command things to happen or not happen. That's false teaching. That's wrong. That's not even what Elijah the prophet is doing. What he's doing is following everything according to the design and plan and word of God. Look at verse 3 of chapter 13. God has made a provision for Elijah to eat and drink. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook. I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. That's supernatural, but go right there. That's where you're going to be provided for. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord and went and lived by the brook of Cherith that is east of the Jordan. Now in chapter 18, uh, skip over there. It says, after many days, the word of the Lord. Here's that phrase again. The word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. It's been three years. God speaks to Elijah and tells him what to do, saying, go show yourself to Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe. You have verse three, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. So Obadiah is a believer. He's kind of an undercover agent working with Ahab. And then Jezebel cut off the prophets. What's she doing? She's killing off prophets. She's bitter. We're starving to death because Elijah, in the name of God, shut everything down. So I'm going to kill the prophets. And if I kill off all of these representatives of God, maybe we'll, our God will show up and give us thunder and lightning and rain. Baal worship was, was really praying for rain. Maybe we'll get what we need there. Obadiah, though, took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them bread and water. So Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land, all the springs of water and all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses, mules alive. That's so they can still grow crops and try to live and not lose some of the animals. They divided the land between them. And so verse seven, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, is it you, my Lord, Elijah? Now, ultimately, Elijah and Obadiah arranged a meeting for him to meet with Ahab and that Picks up in verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? What a miscasting of Elijah. And he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Ashereth who eat at Jezebel's table. So it's the showdown. It said, high noon, meet me at Mount Carmel. We're going into the octagon together. We're going to fight it to the death. Because if Elijah loses, he's going to die. They're going to kill him. I mean, this, is a, this is a massive event. It's one against 450 and 400, right? Up on the mountaintop. But really, Elijah, it's God against the prophets of Baal. This is how we have to think. We have to be fearless as Christians. We have to stand for truth at, at all costs. We have to stand for truth, right? We have to. That's what Elijah is doing. But he's doing it according to God's timetable, not his own. He's not doing it within his own power. So Ahab sent to all the people. He took the challenge. The people of Israel and gathered the prophets together. He wanted a big crowd around to see his great victory that he was going to have against Elijah. It's been three years. He's going to slay him. All these other prophets have been killed. We're going to kill the, the head of the prophets. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. If you think Baal's your answer for rain, follow him. If it's the Lord, follow him. He draws the line in the sand and the people did not answer him a word. So many people want to syncretize false religion, paganism in the name of Christianity. They want to have it both ways. 
And Elijah's saying you can't have it both ways. You have the God of the Bible or you don't have God at all. That's what he's doing. It's what we need to do. It's what we need to say to help people. Verse 25, it says, Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first for you or many, and call upon the name of your God and put no fire to it, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon. So six hours or whatever saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. He wants to expose them for their paganism, saying, cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. He's either in deep thought or he's using the bathroom or he is on a journey. That's literally what Elijah's saying. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and look at what they did. They cut themselves. This is paganism. This is self-mutilization. It's what people do in our culture today. They're cutting themselves. They're being dramatic. They're trying to lose control to see if God will show up. They cried aloud, and after their custom with swords and lances, they cut themselves until the blood gushed out of them. And as midday passed, so it's past noon, they raved. So now they're worked up in a full lather, a full rave, which is a a movement where people party today. And that that ah spirituality is actually where satanic um, involvement gets gets an inroad into people's hearts when they let go and open themselves up. They raved until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So Elijah's not doing any magic tricks. He's not doing any sleight of hand. Come in close, see exactly what I'm going to do. I'm not doing anything that you cannot see yourself. And all the people came near to him. He repaired the altar because it had been knocked down. Um, He repaired the altar of the Lord that they had thrown down, that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones. God is a God of order. He's doing it very orderly. He's contrasting their rave. He's setting things up according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. Another reference to God's word. And the stones he built in the altar in the name of the Lord made a trench about the altar. He dug it around it as great as would contain two sayas of seed so it's a deep trench he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood he said fill four jars of water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood he's going to wet the wood how many times he said do it a second time they did a second time he said do it a third time and they did it a third time this is soaked in saturated wood the water ran all around the altar and filled the trench also with water So he fills all of this. It's just soaked. And at the time of the offering, the oblation, Elijah, the prophet came near and said, and I love this, oh Lord. And this is in an ordered way in, in biblical history. This is the one true God, oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel. He's the God of David. He's, he's the God of Jesus Christ, who is our Messiah, who is God, right? He's identifying the true God. Let it be known this day to you. You are the God in Israel, and I am your servant. I have done all these things, what? At your word. This is not about Elijah. This is about him obeying God's word. He's praying according to the word of God. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. What's the response? And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Why do we worship? We worship to say, he is God. He is God. He is God. It's about him. Prayer is about God. Back to Matthew 6. We're just going to touch our toe in the shallow end of the pool. Do not be like them, verse 8. But pray like then, like, like this, verse 9. Pray then like this. How do we pray? This is our prayer like Elijah. He's a man with a like nature, just like ours. We pray effectual, fervent prayers. We pray with earnestness and passion. This is how we pray. Our Father in heaven. Father is the Christian name for God. It reveals that we are his sons. 
Our spirit cries with God's spirit, the Abba, that we are sons of God. We're his children. We're his elect. We're known by him. We pray, Father, which is pater. It's a name of affection. He's holy. He's hallowed. He's our Father. He knows you. We pray to our Father. It's used 16 times. The name Father is used 16 times in the Old Testament out of 39 books of the Bible. But in the New Testament, Jesus used the name Father for God every time save one. Do you know the time he didn't use the word Father? It's when he was on the cross, separated by your sin and my sin, going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had the relationship with his father that you have the relationship with your father. And the reason you have your relationship with your father is because Jesus sacrificed for a moment his relationship with your, fa- with your father and his father so that he could be your father by taking and absorbing God's wrath on himself on the cross going, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that so that you could have the relationship that he has. You see that? That's so important. Why do we pray? I don't want to pray. Well, why do you want to pray? You want to pray because you know he knows everything that you need. His omniscience should not send you away in passivity. It should draw you into intimacy. And you pray to him as your father because he bought you with the precious blood of his son. And he wanted you. He wanted you. And he wants you to come to him. He wants to enjoin with you in This prayer interpreted by the Holy Spirit where you synchronize up with the will of God. It's amazing. That's why we pray. That's why we go to him. So we know him. A couple final applications. It's not the quality of your words. It's um, that you pray the words of God, the truths of scripture. You bear your heart. It's not words of quantity. It's words that are wrapped up with truth. When needs happen around you, you pray, but you remember to go to God, the God of Scripture. Let God's all-knowing nature draw you to prayer. Let it ease you from the pressure of life. Be still and know that He is God. He knows everything. The Lord's Prayer tells us who we pray to, how we pray, what we pray for. And the name of God being Father shows us the intimate care that our prayers are given in the context of. He knows everything you need. Don't judge people's prayer habits, by the way. If you're a morning person and you get up and pray, that's great. But don't tell anybody. (laughs) It's just because you're a morning person. If you're not a morning person, pray at night. Pray all, all the time without ceasing. Pray in the way that God designed you to pray. Some people are walking and strolling prayers, in the car prayers, at their desk prayers, praying with no card prayers, list prayers, pray scripture specifically through Psalms prayers. Use all these ways and try things and pray. But whatever you do, pray and pray in the way that God scripts for us to pray, which is to approach him humbly as our father.